You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, let's get right into the sermon. We are um, we're in a series that uh, we've been in since the beginning of the year, January 1st. Uh, it's a series, it's untitled. I couldn't come up with a clever title, so it's untitled, but we're talking about faith, the nature of faith, what it is, what it isn't, how it works, and all of that. And today is part four of this series. Um, I want to encourage you, if you've missed any of the sermons from the series, go back, if you would, and listen to whatever you missed, just so you'll have a fuller context of what I'm presenting throughout the series, because it's such a huge topic. You don't have the luxury of saying everything that you need and want to say in one sermon. So I'm just uh, approaching this from various angles. And we're going to actually pick up a thread that I, that I exposed last week, and we're going to pull it all the way out uh, today. And the title of my sermon this morning is House of Cards Theology. House of Cards Theology. I want to look at a couple passages with you, and just to kind of prime the pump, and then we're going to pray and then jump right into the sermon. This first one, and we're also going to be in this passage next week as well. This first one is in John 5. And let's go ahead and look at it. Verses 35 through 39. And here's Jesus speaking. He, he's referring to John the Baptist. He says, uh, John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a testimony greater than John's. That word greater can be translated weightier or more important, more authoritative, more significant. I have a testimony greater than John's. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf and the Father that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that testify on my behalf. Very compelling statement and passage. Jesus, referring to his cousin John, he says, I have a testimony greater than John's, weightier, more authoritative than John's. Now, what's interesting is that elsewhere in Matthew 11, um, Jesus identifies John as the greatest ever born among women, of women, I should say. He's the greatest ever born. He's the greatest prophet who ever lived. So it's like he's saying, even John and, and every prophet before him and all of the scripture writers, yes, it's inspired, it's God breathed, uh, it was God's mouthpiece, and yet when, you, when, you're, when you're assessing me, don't see me as just one prophet among many. Don't see me as just one revelation of God among and alongside of every other revelation. I am the quintessential revelation of God that sums up and completes all others. He says it explicitly at the end of that passage. You search the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life, but it is they that testify on my behalf. They want to point you to me. I have testimony greater than John's. And then one other verse I want to bring to your mind is in Matthew 23, verse 23. Jesus is referring to uh, a group of scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier. Everybody say weightier. Not wittier. Weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So he's, got, he's like, you guys are missing the forest for the trees. You're, you're so um, meticulous and obsessed with tithing on your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, but you're neglecting the more important, the greater, weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, everything that Jesus has just mentioned here, this is all in the Bible. This is all in the Scriptures. It's all in the law. But apparently, according to Jesus, the law in the Bible is not a flat text. Where every idea, every belief, every concept, every verse, every passage has equal weight and equal value. There are some matters weightier than others. There are some matters more important and greater than others. That's why elsewhere when somebody asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He doesn't say, well, you're, you know, they're, they're all equal. He says, well, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. Those are the great commandments put together and they're really one and the same so I just want you to have that in your mind that there are some matters weightier more important more authoritative than others let's pray Heavenly Father I'm grateful God for this moment this opportunity to meet with you and encounter Christ in your scriptures by the enablement of the Holy Spirit thank you Lord that every person here is here by your design there's something that you want to speak to us. There's something that you want to deposit into our lives as an individual and as a collective body. And so right now, we humble ourselves before your word and we invite you to speak to us, consecrating this moment unto you. Speak to the core of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Everybody here is familiar with a house of cards. You've seen a house of cards many times in your life. You take these playing cards, you, you lean themselves against one another in such a fashion that uh, if you do it right, you can actually assemble a pretty impressive uh, structure. I'm told that the world record for the tallest house of cards ever built in the span of one hour was actually set last year, 2022. There was a guy who, in the span of one hour, built a, a house of cards over seven feet tall in one hour. If you're wondering, the tallest house of cards ever built, regardless of time limit, over two stories high, over 25 feet tall, took the guy over six weeks to build. It just makes me wonder, like, what if somebody, like, as he's getting to the end, what if somebody would have sneezed and the whole thing collapsed? But the thing about a house of cards that I want to draw your attention to is that when you assemble a house of cards, each individual card bears equal weight and equal value. And if you were to take any particular card out of the structure, the entire thing would likely collapse. It's been my experience that oftentimes when people come into the Christian faith, they begin to assemble a house of cards theology, a house of cards faith, where each individual belief, idea, doctrine, Bible verse bears equal weight and equal importance so that if you were to remove any particular card from the structure, the entire thing is at risk of collapsing. 
me give you an example of what I'm talking about. For many decades, probably centuries now, critics of Christianity have attempted to cast doubt on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus by pointing out what they assume to be uh, alleged discrepancies and inconsistencies between the way that the four gospel authors report the events. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are four books in the New Testament. We call them the Gospels. Each one of them gives an account of the final week of Jesus' life, including the resurrection events, the discovery of the empty tomb, and the various appearances. And yet, when you compare the way Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story, they don't tell the story in the exact same way. Now, many people believe you can harmonize it, uh, but it is true that they, they give different details. If you were to ask the question, Who are the women who arrived at the empty tomb? How many of them were there? What time did they arrive? Was the stone already rolled away or was it rolled away after they arrived? How many angels? When did they show up? If you ask those kinds of questions, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, they they give differing details. They tell the story in a different way. And on the basis of that, many critics of Christianity point to those apparent discrepancies and they'll say, well, see, you can't trust what they're telling us because they can't get their story straight. So we ought to just throw the whole thing out and just assume it's a big lie and nothing happened. There are numerous problems with that mentality. I don't have time to dig deep into that today, but I'll just say one thing. That's not how eyewitness testimony works, generally speaking. Um, When JFK was shot, and I, for whatever reason, that event in history has always captivated me. In the past, I've read all kinds of books on it. I just find it fascinating. But when JFK was assassinated in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, there were a ton of eyewitnesses. That's a presidential motorcade in the middle of a major city. So you had tons and tons of people who were right there and they experienced it firsthand. Many of them, maybe most of them, later on were tracked down and interviewed about their experience and gave an account of what they witnessed. And what's interesting is that when you compare their testimony In a lot of cases, it is like wildly inconsistent. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the echo chamber that Dealey Plaza is. It can disorient somebody if if there's a loud sound or something like that. But, But it's interesting when you compare their testimony. Like people were saying, there were people who said, I heard shots coming from the sixth story of this building. Other people said, I heard shots coming from this grassy knoll. I heard shots coming from the railroad tracks over there. No, I heard shots coming from this building way across Dealey Plaza. So it's all over the map. There were people who said when JFK was shot, his body lunged forward and to the right. Other people said, no, it went backwards and to the left. There were people who said, I heard three distinct shots. Other people said, I heard four shots. Some people said, I heard five shots. Some said eight shots. (laughs) So you look at all of their testimony and you compare it, and in a lot of cases, it's like wildly divergent. But you would never look at all of that and say, man, these people, you can't trust what they're saying. You know, they can't get their story straight. So we just got to throw the whole thing out and assume nothing happened. No, something happened. JFK, and, and here's the thing. Even if their details are different on the secondary details, when it comes to the core details of the story, all of them agree. They all agree JFK was shot in an open limousine on Elm Street in Dilly Plaza, Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. No disagreement with any of that. It's the same thing with the resurrection story. Regardless of how you may or may not be able to harmonize their stories, when it comes to the core details of the event, the essence of it, all of them agree on the basic facts of the resurrection. 
Anyhow, but my major point that I just want to give you in, in terms of the purposes of this sermon is that you find that kind of thing actually numerous places in the Bible. Uh, throughout the Gospels, you know, the Gospel writers oftentimes they will give parallel accounts of the same event, but when you put them side by side, oftentimes the details are a little bit different. Sometimes the order of events in the Gospels are different. Uh, you have varying details and information given about the same event. Sometimes you can harmonize it. Other times it's kind of a challenge. Uh, were there two demoniacs in Gadara that Jesus delivered or one demoniac? Because Matthew says two, Mark and Luke say one. Did the transfiguration happen six days after Peter's confession or eight days after Peter's confession? Because Luke says eight, Matthew says six. So you have that kind of thing in the Gospels and throughout the Bible. You know, when, when David, King David is numbering his army, Towards the end of his career, he wants to count the number of soldiers he has, and he wasn't supposed to do that, apparently. But if you were to ask the question, how many soldiers does he have? 2 Samuel tells us 500,000. 1 Chronicles tells us 470,000. So you have a little disparity there. Now, listen, at this point in my life and my faith, something like that doesn't bother me in the slightest. As far as I'm concerned, one of them rounded up, the other one rounded down. Who knows? Who cares, really? But you see, if you have a house of cards theology something like that could be a potential catastrophe because a card has just been plucked out of the structure here's another thing uh, it shouldn't be any surprise to us at all that the bible reflects ancient cosmology i want to show you a, a diagram on the screen that i think might be helpful and instructive for you uh, this is just a very simple diagram that kind of shows us how the ancient Near Eastern people understood cosmology and how the world is structured. So you have like right in the center of that diagram, you have the earth. You have, they believe the earth is this big, massive plot of land, piece of land, but it's surrounded by water. And they believe that the earth is actually supported by structures, pillars underneath the earth. There are these pillars under the earth supporting the earth. And by the way, they believe that when these pillars shake, that's what causes earthquakes. I didn't know if you guys know that or not. You know, so these pillars under the earth actually hold up the land and they believe that these pillars also hold up the sky because according to their cosmology, the sky they believed was actually a hardened dome like structure. Have you ever seen the Truman show? Anybody? It's a similar concept, only much, much bigger, but they believe the, the sky is actually a hardened sort of like translucent structure and in this firmament, the sky actually holds up a body of water. You see that reflected, uh, for example, most prominently in Genesis 1, where it talks about God putting the firmament in its place. It can be translated dome, but, uh, but the word there refers to something solid. And you remember in Genesis 1, it talks about God separating the waters above from the waters below. All of this reflects ancient cosmology. So you have this hard dome structure, this sky holding up this water. You ask, well, where does the rain come from? And they'd say, well, there are windows, there are storehouses. And when the windows open, that's where, how the moisture gets through. We, we, so we have like in the Hebrew prophets, we sing about it uh, today, open up the floodgates. Um, all of that's biblical language, open up the windows of heaven. We think it's just poetry. This is how the ancient people understood the cosmic structure of the world. I mean, how else is that water going to get through that hard sky? You tell me. Um, in the book of Job, Job talks about uh, God making the sky as hard as molten lava. 
Molten lava was like the hardest substance they, they knew about, and it's got to be hard because it's holding up all that water. So you have this hardened dome that's holding up the water, and then the actual dome of the sky is being held up by these pillars. Now, what holds up the pillars? No one could quite figure that one out. Uh, they, never get, they never got that far. But see, listen, it shouldn't be surprising to us that when God's dealing with these ancient people, he's got to speak to them on their level. So he's, of course he's going to speak to them in terms of the language and the science of their day. How else is he going to deal with them? How else is he going to communicate with them? So we've got to cut them a little bit of slack. If God had showed up in the ancient world speaking to them in terms of modern science, like, I want all of you to praise me and worship me because of the second law of thermodynamics and because of non-equilibrium theory and the butterfly effect and chaos, chaos theory and, and the superposition of quantum particles. Those people would have had no clue what he was talking about. Most of you have no clue what I'm talking about. Thank you, Helen. Can I get a witness? But you see, if you have a house of cards theology where you assume the Bible's supposed to be scientifically accurate and, and be 100% consistent and harmonized in all these areas, you are setting yourself up for a potential collapse. And that's what happens to a lot of people. I think that's one of the main reasons why the retention rate of church-going teenagers who later on go on to attend and graduate from secular universities is so poor. Did you know that one out of five church-going teenagers who later goes on to attend and graduate from a secular university, only one out of five of them remains a church-going Christian upon graduation? And I think one of the major reasons why is because we hand them a house of cards theology that's so easily dismantled in the classroom. And that's why I'm interested and, and willing to take a risk in preaching a sermon like this, not knowing how everybody's going to respond, because dad is interested in his son and his daughter having a faith that's sturdy enough and flexible enough to withstand any potential challenge that may come their way. I want to see Carson and Reagan Post have a vibrant relationship with Jesus for the rest of their lives. I want to help make that possible and hand them a theology that's sturdy and flexible enough to withstand it. So how does that happen and what does that look like? I'm really glad you asked those questions. That's what we're going <laughs> to spend the rest of our time on today. So I want to I show you a different paradigm of how to do faith, how to do theology. And I'm going to show you this in a series of diagrams. Rather than having a house of cards theology, I want to show you what it might look like to have a Christ-centered paradigm of faith. So you can actually give me the next diagram just to kind of give you a concept. This is where we're going to go today. I'm going to show you, rather than looking at faith as a house of cards where every card bears equal weight, I'm going to show you how to have a, how to have a model of faith that's more like Christ at the center, and there's a series of concentric circles, and each circle going out represents a category of beliefs that's slightly less, maybe even much less important than the previous one. So a kind of concentric circle model of faith. And if you have something to draw with, maybe you might draw these diagrams, or you can always just use your phone and take a picture of the screen. But I want to talk about the first element of this, which is the center, the heart of our faith. And this is what I'm going to spend the most time on 
in relation to the other three elements of this. And that is at the center of our faith is the person of Jesus Christ. See, with the house of cards, every individual card is equally important, equally valuable, and, and they are all equally interdependent upon one another. With this model of faith, everything is dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ, period. Everything is centered on him. Everything flows from Christ. One of the themes I've given you throughout this series is I've, I've been telling you that biblical faith is not a psychological gimmick in your mind. It is relational trust like marriage. It's not self-absorbed. It's other-oriented. I am pledging myself and vowing myself to this person that I'm going to pledge to live my life with you where we're learning to trust one another and walk trustworthily before one another. I am giving myself to you. It is covenantal trust. And you see, when you do that, you don't do it with a set of beliefs. You do it with a person. So at the center of our faith is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, sorry. I was like, what did I just say? Um, if you were to ask the question, Ryan, why do you choose to put your trust in the person of Jesus Christ and not in Buddha or Allah, Muhammad, Shintoism, Hinduism, or any other religious faith? That's the exact right question to ask. That's what Jesus is getting at when he tells his disciples, who do you say that I am? If you're going to spend a whole lot of time like thinking deeply and researching questions, make, make the main question that question right there. Make that the question. Because that's what everything hangs upon. Why follow Jesus? And when it comes to me personally, I have very compelling historical reasons, very compelling philosophical reasons, very compelling intuitive reasons, very compelling experiential reasons to believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the Revealer of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. I have very, very compelling reasons to believe that. Therefore, I'm willing to take the step and put all my eggs in this basket and base the whole story of my life on Jesus Christ and invest myself in this person and his vision for the world. And so for me, Christ is at the center and it's from Christ that I get all of my life. He's the source of everything my soul craves. He's the source of my sense of worth and value. He is the source of my core sense of peace and joy. Christ is the source of my identity, how I understand myself. He's what gets me up in the morning. I'm, I'm just captivated by Jesus Christ in his vision for humankind. And so I am pledging my entire self to him. He's at the center. He's the core of my faith, the total content of my faith. He's what it's all about. It's from Jesus Christ that I understand what God is like. It's from Jesus Christ that I understand who I am and how God feels about me. And it's also from Jesus Christ I understand who you are and how God feels about you. And think about it. If I know what God is like based on Jesus Christ, if I know who I am based upon Jesus Christ, if I know who you are and how God feels about you based upon Jesus Christ, and if I know that the goal of life is to imitate that, that's like 99% of the ball game right there. If I know that God is the kind of God who's willing to die for me and he feels that I'm worth dying for and he believes that you're worth dying for and the goal of life is to imitate that, that pretty much covers it right there. That's the center right there, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
even with just that, I have, a, I have a trajectory now by which I can live my life. I've got enough to go on right there. And watch this. Even if I'm wrong about everything else, even if I'm wrong about a lot of my theology, I'm good. Why? Because I know and I'm connected to the person of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself this. In the Gospels, whenever Jesus goes around inviting people to follow him and join the kingdom, how many, how many times does Jesus give them a preliminary theological question? None. Zilch. Zero. He never has them fill out a form. He doesn't perform a background check. He doesn't put them through a theological inquisition as a precondition to following him. He just simply asks them, will you follow me? And if you wanted to follow him, you would follow him. And I'm sure there were many, many times when Jesus encountered a person like, like the Samaritan woman or Zacchaeus, someone, someone like that. I'm sure there were many times Jesus encounters a person and to himself he's thinking, man, they've got some messed up theology. Like, I'm going to have to correct this over a lifetime. Boy, their theology is messed up. But watch this. Correcting their theology was never a precondition for getting into the kingdom. Rather, it's getting into the kingdom and following Jesus. That's what progressively corrects our theology. The New Testament is so filled with rich, rich, deep, profound theology. I love every single verse of it, but none of it is a precondition for getting into the kingdom of God. The precondition for getting into the kingdom of God is simply, will you follow Jesus? Will you turn from your self-centered way of life? We call that repentance and pledge yourself to the person of Jesus Christ. So at the center of everything is Jesus and everything depends upon him. And watch this, when that's the case, then any apparent inconsistencies that someone may show me about the Bible, now it doesn't bother me. It doesn't rattle me. Why? Because at the center of my faith is a person. It's kind of like this. Um, when Carrie and I got married nearly 18 years ago, and I pledged myself to her and she pledged herself to me, I married into her story. I married into her family history. There's a whole history that came along with this woman that predates me. Carrie didn't just plop out of the sky, out of heaven, out of nowhere. Although there are some days I think that. <laughs> but she was 23 years old before I met her. So there's a whole history, there's a whole story and family genealogy that's wrapped up in this woman and when I marry this person, I'm also embracing that. I'm marrying into the story. I'm marrying into her history, and it's inseparable. And for me to grow to love her and to know her means I've also got to get to know her story because that's what makes her who she is. You can't separate the two. But here's the distinction. I'm married to the person. I'm not married to the story. The story comes along with her. I marry the person but I'm not married to the story. I'm not married to the history, but the history is inseparable, and that's what enables me to love her more. That's part of what enables me to love her more. In the same way, watch this, and this is going to help some of you. Some of you may, may struggle with this, but watch this. We don't marry the Bible. We marry the person of Jesus Christ, but the Bible comes with him because Jesus has a story that he belongs to. There's a history that Jesus belongs to. And so to know and to love Jesus also means I need to get to know his story. He's embedded in the story. I can't have Jesus without the story. Amen? Amen. I can't have Jesus without the history that he comes with. 
And so they're absolutely inseparable. But I don't marry the story. I don't marry the Bible. I'm married to the person of Jesus Christ. And if, if you can just reframe that, you're no longer living in a house of cards. And you no longer have to get rattled and upset whenever you find what may or may not be an apparent discrepancy in the Bible. Because your faith doesn't need to ride on that any more than I need to get upset if I find a, a discrepancy in Carrie's genealogy. I, I think it's so, such a tragic thing when people lose their faith, their whole house of faith collapses because they find one apparent inconsistency in the scriptures that they can't reconcile and they lose the whole structure. That's like me divorcing my wife because I found a discrepancy in her genealogy. Like how much sense does that make? Carrie, I'm sorry, it's over. I, I just, I can't get your grandfather's birth date to match up with his document, so we're through, we're done. I mean, that's nuts. That's insane. It's a house of cards. You're, you're, it's like tithing on mint, dill, and cumin, but neglecting the more important, weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So at the center is Jesus. Everything depends upon him. He's the source of life that we draw from, and he's our only source of life. So that's at the center. That's the core of our faith. Now, just outside of the center is the innermost ring. And you can give that to me. So the innermost ring going around the center is a category of beliefs that I'm going to label today as dogma. Okay? When I become a Christian, I don't do this on my own. I don't get to make it up as I go. This is not choose your own adventure. Um, to embrace Christ and to belong to Christ is to belong to his body, which is the church. And so when it comes to assessing and evaluating various beliefs and doctrines, I am called to do that in dialogue with the historic Orthodox Church tradition, small o Orthodox Church tradition. That's what Christ ordains. And so I'm called to belong to that and give myself to it. And throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, there are particular beliefs that all Christians everywhere for all times embrace as absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. All Christians believe on, on these particular doctrines, these dogmas. And you find these reflected most prominently in the traditional apostolic ecumenical creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. These are the foundational dogmas of Christianity that all Christians agree on. So an example of dogma would be uh, the belief that God is three in one. God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How many of you agree on that dogma? You're a Christ that, that's part of what makes us Christian is our identification with these foundational beliefs. Another example of Christian dogma would be the belief that Christ fully human and fully God. Not part God, part man, fully man, fully God. How many of you believe that? All right. Uh, another example would be the belief that God is creator of all and God is the governor of the world. God governs and is sovereign over the world. All Christians everywhere believe in that dogma. So these are absolutely essential essential beliefs for, for Christians because these dogmas are what structure the story. The story of the Bible and the story of Jesus makes no sense without the structure that's been put in place from the very foundation of our faith. And so these are absolutely 
essential uh, dogmas, and yet, as important as they are, they're not at the center of our faith because we don't get life and worth and value and identity and significance from how right we are about these beliefs. We get our life, worth, value, and significance from the person of Jesus Christ. You see that distinction? So the innermost ring, which is the most important of the three rings, is dogma. Now, just outside of the first ring is the second ring, the middle ring. And here's where we're going to put a category of beliefs that I'm going to identify today as just simply doctrines. Doctrines. Doctrines represents a category of belief that is very important. These doctrines may be extremely important, and yet these are beliefs that brothers and sisters in Christ may disagree upon. This is where you'll find, you know, for example, what makes certain denominations distinctive to who they are. This is what, doctrine is what might separate uh, Presbyterians from Baptists and Methodists and so on and so forth. So these are very, very important beliefs, and yet it's possible for Christians to have differing views on these particular beliefs. And what, what signifies doctrines, I think what makes them distinct from the outer ring, which I'll show you in just a moment, the way I would distinguish is that usually at this level, I would say that doctrines arise from varying interpretations of dogma. So for example, I told you a moment ago, one example of dogma is the belief that God governs the world. God is sovereign over the world. But at least since the fourth century, Christians have had a wide variety of viewpoints on how exactly that looks and how it plays itself out. On one extreme, there are Christians who believe God controls everything, that God, um, God preordains. Everything that happens, ultimately God ordains it for some purpose. On the other extreme, there are Christians who say, well, we believe too that God is sovereign, and yet God also allows for a certain measure of human free will and angelic free will. And God is so infinitely wise, he weaves it into his sovereign purpose. So you have... Christians on, on either pole and everything in between. So they disagree over how God's sovereignty plays out. They have different doctrines, and yet they can disagree and still love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. Another example would be a doctrine like baptism in the Holy Spirit. Every Christian I know, I don't know of a Christian who doesn't believe in something called baptism in the Holy Spirit. But there's a wide range of views on, well, what is that? When does it happen? To whom and how? So again, uh, a doctrine that emerges from a differing uh, interpretation of dogma. We all believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, but here's, here's a disagreement over exactly how that looks. And then finally, and this is where we'll conclude, there's an outermost ring. And this is where I'm going to put a category of beliefs that we'll just simply label theological opinions. Theological opinions, these may be issues that, again, may be very important, or they may not be important at all, but they don't rise to the level of doctrine, and they definitely don't rise to the level of dogma. So an example of theological opinion, for me, I would put in this outermost ring varying views on the end times. People have all kinds of views on the end times, order of events, all that kind of thing, and some of them get really emotionally invested in it. Uh, here's what the Apostles' Creed says. Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the, creedal, that's the creedal foundation. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And within that statement is a lot of space for varying views and interpretations. I actually believe how we think about the end times is actually very important. 
It affects how we understand God and our mission and things like that. But I would not put that any further than the outermost ring. It's, it's important, but it doesn't rise to the level of doctrine and dogma. Another example would be how we interpret Genesis 1 and 2, the, the creation story. Um, there, there are Christians who interpret the creation story quite literally. And they're what we would identify as young earth creationists. And they believe that the, the earth is very young. Some of them believe the earth is as young as uh, six to 10,000 years old. A lot of Christians, probably the vast majority of Christians, are old earth creationists. And they accept the evidence that science gives us that the earth is actually several billions of years old and the universe much, much older than that. And yet that would leave them with the question of how do we interpret Genesis 1 and 2? And there's all kinds of approaches on how to do that. So you, you have differing opinions on that, and it may or may not be that essential and that important, but we, we want to keep that in that outer ring. It doesn't belong in the category of doctrine, and it definitely doesn't rise to the level of dogma. We should never get dogmatic and divisive over how old the earth is, folks. You know, let's keep dogma, dogma, doctrine, doctrine, theological, theological opinion, theological opinion. And I find the older I get, the less certain I am about the things on the outer edge and the more tightly I cling to the center. And see, if we can do that, if we can learn how to keep things in proper alignment here, we don't have to get angry with one another when we disagree over doctrine and theological opinion. Like if you find yourself getting red-faced and angry with a brother or sister in Christ over the age of the earth or the, the, the events of the end times or something like that, and you feel like you're like God's lawyer or something, you got to prove a case— you know, that's, that's an indication I've taken theological opinion and I put it in the center of the thing. Why? Because I'm getting my life, worth, and value, and significance from how right I am and my ability to win this argument right now. And so to that degree, you, you can't live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we want Christ, the person. The, there's only one element of this that's alive, and that's the center, the living Christ. We want to keep him at the center and keep everything else in proper place. And we can have even disagreements on where different beliefs belong, but we keep Christ at the center. And to the degree that we're able to do that and maintain that and hold these things in place, now we can have disagreements over varying levels of doctrines and the theological opinions, but still do it in a kind, rational, calm, intelligent fashion. And as you do that, who knows, along the way, you may learn a couple things. You might actually change the way you view these things. Why? Because no they're no longer idols to you. And you no longer live in a house of cards theology. What I love about Village, one of the many things I love about Village Church is, you know what we do? We, we center and unite around the person of Jesus Christ. And we build upon the foundational apostolic doctrines of the ecumenical church. And then when it comes to these doctrines and theological opinions, we give each other grace and mercy to hold differences and disagreements, and we hold them loosely because we don't unite around that. We reunite around the person of Christ. And I love that about our church. I don't even think it's a goal. I don't even think it's God's goal that everybody here agrees on every particular issue. I don't even think God's interested in that. I don't think God cares that we agree on every perceivable issue. I think God's goal is let me see if these people at Village Church in Burbank, California, let me see if they can learn to love one another even if they disagree on the age of the earth, for crying out loud. Let me see if they can live in love with one another, just as Christ loved them and gave himself up for them, because that's our testimony to a lost and dying world, that they may be one, Christ prays. 
when they see your unity, when they see your love, they're going to know who sent you and whose spirit you're of. Let that be our goal, the person of Christ in the center. Amen? Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.